Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for songs on an acoustic guitar about turtles. So we are going to go ahead and start you off with a little bit of trivia. All right, Joe, I've got uh, the non-audio trivia for you um, today, and uh, we are going to be talking a lot about guitarist and guitar, so I'm going to give you a guitar quiz. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the name of a very famous guitar and maybe a couple facts about it, and you just tell me whose guitar I am talking about. Okay, okay, I can try that. Okay. And uh, these are mostly like named guitars. This isn't, uh, you know, just a model or something like this. This should be a little bit more uh, information than that. So it's a very specific guitar by a specific artist or of us owned by a specific artist. Okay. All right. Okay. We're going to start you off with uh, Lucille. Lucille is actually the name of many guitars, but the original was named after a woman that two men were fighting over when they started a club fire. The original Lucille was saved uh, by its owner from the fire, but later stolen out of the back of an Oldsmobile and then bought at a pawn shop and eventually made it back to its, uh, to its owner. So who, who, uh, who is Lucille uh, guitar for? B.B. King. B.B. King, yes. All right. Trigger is a Martin N20 nylon string guitar with a lot of faded signatures and a hole in the body. Presumably that's where the uh, seeds and stems fall into. Seeds and stems. Um, I don't know. I don't know that one. That's uh, Willie Nelson's guitar. I was expecting a Willie guitar one, a uh, Willie Nelson guitar one, but I thought his. I just couldn't couldn't remember the name of his guitar. Good one. This this one. We'll see. Okay, the Frankenstrat is named for its pieced together construction. Uh, the patented red and white striped uh, design was made from Schwinn bicycle paint by this over-the-top hair metal guitarist. Is it Slash? Nope. Am I in the right the right area, or is it like you're very close? Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right era. Okay. Okay. Is it somebody from like Poison or Def Leppard? A little earlier. Okay, okay. I'm not sure. I don't know who... who uh... It is uh, Eddie Van Halen. It's oh, okay. red and white striped guitar you always see him yep, playing with. Yep, and I've, he- I've heard of that one. I just... You know what threw me off was the heavy metal. So... Yeah, heavy metal was... Okay. was probably the wrong word. Oh, well. All That's right. All right. All right, the next guitar is the Jagstang. And this is a car, guitar that was made for a rocker who uh, liked playing with both the Jaguar... Fender model and the Mustang Fender model. And so he apparently took Polaroids and taped them together and sent it off to Fender uh, to make him a specialty guitar, which he um, apparently hated and almost never used. His uh, <laughs> widow later gave the guitar to Peter Buck, who used it in a couple REM videos. 
Huh. This is another story I've heard. And... Another one, I don't know. I don't know who that... Who, I, that's not a guitar name I've heard. But I've heard this story for, about the Peter about Peter Buck. Yep, that was Kurt Cobain. Oh, really? Wow. Yep. Okay. Okay, here we go. This is the Twang Machine. And this is based off homemade cigar box guitars that this musician used to uh, make in his young days. And Gretsch produces this rectangular specialty guitar. Bo Diddley? Bo Diddley. Absolutely right. Okay. Okay. Next one is Old Black. This guitar was acquired in a trade with a bandmate and was subsequently used to record most electric parts of the solo albums for the next 50 or so years. It was usually played with a peace sign guitar strap. Uh, Neil Young. Yep, you nailed it. All right, perfect. All right. Macabre. That was the name. Uh, it was named after a tormented debtor in Dickens' David Copperfield. This guitar is always kept in open G tuning with only five strings. So it, that means it is just barely less strung out than its immortal owner. Jerry Garcia? Nope. Oh, uh, just strung out. Man, I don't know. Who is it? That is Mr. Keith Richards. Oh, good one. Okay. Okay. All right. The five neck, the five neck hammer with five uh, guitar necks. This guitar is basically more a stage prop than an instrument. Uh, it's uh, custom made. So finding a similar model would not be cheap. <laughs> is it from cheap trick or kiss? It is from cheap, cheap, cheap <laughs> trick. <laughs> the cheap trick guy that we were talking about a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, Rick, yeah. Rick, Rick yes. Nielsen. Yep, yes. you got it. Okay. Nailed it. All right. Cloud is oddly colored white instead of purple. This guitar is often described as voluptuous and curvy and first gained notoriety in a semi-autobiographical movie. Prince. That is Prince. Very good. All right. Hofner Violin Bass. It was bought in a pinch at a Hamburg music shop for the equivalent of about $45. Paul McCartney. Yep, Paul McCartney, you got it. All right, last one. Tiger is a guitar that sounds best when played by a guitarist with nine and a half fingers who smelt heavily of patchouli. That would be Willie Nelson again, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I will patchouli. say that you, you have named this guitarist. Oh, oh, Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia, you got it. I didn't know he was missing half a finger. Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah. No, He's no. in his um, playing hand, but his strumming hand or picking hand, whatever you want to call it. Like, I guess he, like, half of his ring finger, maybe, or maybe his pinky got chopped off in an axe by, by an axe when he was a kid. So he's only got nine and a half fingers. That's a cool story. Yep. Yeah. Huh. So there is something interesting about him. <laughs> that would be nice. Okay. Well, I've got the audio quiz. That was a great one. I think started off bad, but I think it did okay in the end. All right. I've got an audio, I've got an audio quiz. And what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play five clips and I want you to name the artist for all five clips and each of the song that's playing during each of the clips. There are two songs playing 
during each one overlapping themselves. Same artist, though. <laughs> so, so there's what? So you, you're saying you put two songs on top of each other, but they're by the same artist. Yes, same artist. So I, I oh the first time I've done this, I wanted to kind of give you an intro, see if this is something that'll work, or if it should just be thrown to the trash heap. But we'll give it a try. All right, let's do it. All right, here we go. Track one. How do you think you did? I think I've got most of the artist picking out the songs. Like I could usually get one of the songs, but picking out both was kind of tough. That some of them sound really cool. It took a little while. To, uh, like at first, I was just going to put them right on top of each other and not do anything, but it sounded so bad that I tried to I tried to move things around or shift it around so that it, it was at least listenable. Yeah, I've got some guesses. I think uh, I think we'll we'll find out at the end of the show when we give the answers away. Perfect. I think we're on to our next our next segment, which is turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. I want to play you a song. That 1930 recording was from a rare Paramount 78 of Charlie Patton's Sweet Pea Blues. There's only one known copy of this record. A middle-class white kid from Maryland found it on a 78 hunt in the South. In the case of this record, he and a buddy drove his 55 Chevy to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and went door-to-door in impoverished black neighborhoods looking to buy up any old country blues 78s they could find. Eventually, he found an elderly lady who let him in the house to dig through and play stacks of her old records. She had a story for each of her records and was more than happy to share. When the lady played the Charlie Patton record, the young man knew he was hearing a song as rare as the Holy Grail, and 
probably is valuable. She started to tell him a story about the song and about Charlie Patton, whom she had known personally. The young man cut her off, pretending the record and the company story had little to no interest to him. Though he later would write a hundred-page thesis on Charlie Patton, which would for years be considered a benchmark of blues research and writing, he feigned apathy at the expense of learning the rarest personal details about the song and the man whom he idolized. Most likely, he wanted to make sure he secured the priceless disc for the usual 25-cent cost. This is a perfect example of the attitude that would later drive the genre known as American Primitive Guitar, a wholehearted and obsessive devotion to the style and spirit of American country blues music, but with none of the context, or perhaps in an entirely different context. American Primitive Guitar is the sound of the emptiness of this nation, the vast rocky space of the western deserts, the impassable swamps of the south, the abandonment and grime of Midwest factory towns, ribbons of highways cutting through infinite cornfields and suburbs, the cold, stark forests of the Northwest and the elitist metropolises of the eastern seaboard, each equally harrowing and oddly beautiful landscapes. The sound is simple. Steel string acoustic guitar finger-picked in the traditional blues style, usually in odd open tunings. But the concept is much more. The playing transcends the tired 1-4-5 framework with an eye on classical, exotic, and experimental ingenuity. Whereas the blues and country music was familiar and warm, this guitar sound was dissonant and melancholy. Speed and precision were resigned in favor of playing that is emotional, intense, self-aware, and honest. There were spaces in between the notes that would be left hanging in silence for far longer than comfortable. And when the note finally arrived to relieve you of your anticipation, it sounded unexpected, maybe uninvited. The roots of the music are mightily entangled, both encompassing aspects of, while shunning presumptions of, many musical genres. Country, blues, folk, bluegrass, ragtime, rock, psych, drone, and even raga. A sort of revival of American folk songs, but one that shun the political leanings and lyrical meanderings of the Seeger and Guthrie followers, more drawn to the Harry Smith anthology and country singers. There are few rules and fewer boundaries, but the drive was the same, a guitarist using his instrument and his playing to tell a story without words. And it really all began with one young man from Maryland. John Fahey is a folk guitarist, but in the same way Dylan is a protest singer, Coltrane, a sax player, or Tom Waits, a lounge singer. The depths and widths of their influence move far beyond their medium and leave the listener with indescribable, almost mythological ideas of what these artists were. Fahey changed the boundaries of his instrument, and he would do it without any formal training. In fact, Fahey's naming of the musical style he invented is a self-deprecating and sardonic shot at his own self-taught style at the over-intellectualized music, especially folk music, around him. But that was the thing though he himself was never classically trained, didn't even have a childhood piano lesson. He was fairly well-off, he was a fairly well-off, middle-class, college-educated musician. As previously noted, he wrote academic papers on the blues and studied mythology. He felt free to chastise other musicians in other genres as fraudulent. The acoustic guitar became Americana's unreliable narrator. His liner notes and autobiography are full of faux academic procedural writing, 
half-truths, opinion pieces, and blatant falsehoods. On his first record, he claimed that it was half performed by Blind Joe Death, an old blues man that he discovered. He would in later years put on glasses and come to the stage with a cane to perform as his imaginary alter ego. Or like when he perpetuated a legendary tale about punching out Italian director Michelangelo Antonioni because he wanted him to record soundtrack music for a love scene which Fahey felt was more like an orgy. By all accounts, there was no fight at all between them. On records, he would sometimes record his guitar over unedited rare blues records and claim, as, claim them as his own. Sometimes, he would just put a whole song on there uncredited. In his later years, he'd just have musician friends record his songs for him under the mindset that he could play it himself, but he didn't really want to. And that probably was the truth. His skills and inventiveness were peerless. These auditory forgeries were more likely part of his trickster personality and personal legend building. It was also what makes writing about his life somewhat difficult. In reading a biography and several long-form articles and papers on Fahey, we still have a hard time getting a grasp on him. He certainly was cantankerous and unpleasant, and there are multitudes of stories to back this up. My favorites being him threatening to beat up Joni Mitchell's manager for allegedly trying to steal his thunder, and his purposefully destroying rare copies of 78s, which he already owned, in an effort to drive up the value of his copy. He was a driven musician, forming a label and investing in other musicians and recording and performing consistently early in his career. But he also had little interest in fame and less in money. His stage performances were so confrontational that he almost assured himself of never reaching the heights of what a hardworking musical genius like him should have. However... He was wise enough to surround himself with people who adored him and looked out for his interests just enough to let him continue writing and recording. His obsessive and self-destructive tendencies were often tempered with humorous, self-reflective, and even loving moments. However, one thing is certain, he was dedicated to music. Born in the D.C. suburb of Tacoma Park, Fahey had a troubled childhood with a loving mother but a distant and possibly abusive father. Fahey was a rebellious kid, getting in trouble for striking a girl at school and taking to throwing turtles at car windshields. His fascination with, or maybe guilt about, turtles would continue into adulthood as he would become an amateur terrapin expert, stopping for them as they were crossing the road, buying 13 of them at once from a pet shop with substandard conditions, and even recording an LP titled The Voice of the Turtle. As a teen, he generally felt as an outsider, opposed to the perceived dishonesty and social pecking order of his peers. But he found solace in music. His roots were strong as the Fahey family blared classical music that filled the house and sometimes the neighborhood with soaring tunes. He grew up very fond of Jimmy Rogers and other country musicians that he had heard on the radio. He bought a $17 Sears guitar and learned some technique by watching Elmore Williams, a local older black musician who played in Blind Boy Fuller style. He, alone in his room, would spend hours playing and developing a style. He also found some musically like-minded folks, most notably Dick Spotswood. The two bonded over their interest in long-forgotten musical fads and eventually started going on road trips to find rare 78s. Spotswood would be looking for pre-war blues, while Fahey would be more interested in hillbilly and bluegrass records. Fahey would trade away any race records he happened to find. Then, one day, Fahey heard the following song, and was suddenly and completely converted to the blues. Mm -hmm. 
Blindville Johnson's Praise God I'm Satisfied was a life-altering event. Spotswood describes it like lightning striking Saul on the way to Damascus. When John went home that day, he immediately phoned his friend and asked him to play the song again and again and again for him. Fahey became more enthralled with record collecting and finding these forgotten blues relics and finding the men who forged them. His journeys and collecting would make him a member of a somewhat secretive society called the East Coast Blues Mafia that found and dealt rare and valuable 78s. Fahey's ability to unearth and sell these records would prove a source of livelihood throughout his life, including his later years of near destitution. Spotswood would go on to become one of the leading musicologists and host a successful radio program about American music. Also in the group of collectors was Joe Bussard, whose collection of over 25,078s is perhaps the most exhaustive and important in the world. This connection with Bussard proved to be pivotal for the young guitarist. Fahey had an odd devotion to figuring out how to make the guitar sounds he heard from the 78s with their strange tunings and otherworldly finger-picking. He also began incorporating other elements of style in order to achieve a sort of one-man orchestration. As biographer Steve Lowenthal describes it, Relating to the intellectual appeal of classical music, the sadness of country and western, and the spirituality of hymns, he became interested in the transformative powers of each. The unique and bold blending of styles caught the attention of Boussard, who encouraged Fahey to record for his phonotone label. Boussard made a lathe-cutting machine, which cuts records one at a time in his basement. Fahey re- recorded six sides under the pseudonym Blind Thomas even attempting to sing like a real bluesman. Have a listen. It's, um, well, it's something. This would be the first and last time Fahey would seriously attempt to sing on a record. Boussard sold the 78s through mail order, mostly drumming up interest on his radio show, and the phonotone recordings were rough and somewhat juvenile, but they laid the template for the American primitive guitar style, and they were also an early example of a private press label. The experience of that recording led Fahey to want to be able to document and share his music under his own control. In 1959, Fahey started a label called Tacoma Records, named after his hometown. He would get 100 copies printed and self-release his first proper record called Blind Joe Death. It was packaged in a plain white sleeve with his name in block letters on the front and the album title on the back. Confusing the matter was that Fahey played up the alter ego of Blind Joe Death 
alluding that the album was half his songs and half played by his mysterious blues man. Whether this was a true reflection of a desire for authenticity and credibility as a musician, a minstrelization of a bluesman persona, or just a good lark on Fahey's behalf is debatable. Many aspects of all three could be possible. The hundred copies were sold at the gas station where Fahey worked or placed in thrift store bins, with a few copies being mailed to respected cultural folk blues scholars. Despite the minimal distribution, the record made waves with its fresh and unheard take on folk and blues. Here's In Christ There's No East or West from Blind Joe Death. Fahey soon moved to California, following his friend and business partner Ed Denson. Well, more likely he was following his friend's wife Pat Sullivan, with whom he was enamored. The first of many of Fahey's unhealthy fixations on women. While in California, Fahey started college at UC Berkeley, with aspirations on writing scholarly papers on the blues. He also continued to perform and record, and was getting more, much more confident and better technically at the style he was pioneering. Denson, with his social skills and business acumen, worked well with Fahey, despite the love triangle, and together they made Tacoma into a legitimate label that not only was a vessel for Fahey to have free artistic reign, but also a springboard to sign other like-minded artists. We're going to take a moment here to veer away from Fahey to talk about the artists who were inspired by him, competitive with him, and sometimes cooperative with him in making the guitar solely movement into a more mainstream musical form. Each of these guitars probably deserves more than just a cursory mention here, but they all seem linked to Fahey. And while Fahey, though groundbreaking, did not have the ambition or temperament to break through, these artists, many of whom got their start on Tacoma, helped shape the style despite dwelling in the shadow of the brooding bitter giant. One of the first Fahey followers was an accomplished string musician named Sandy Bull. He was considered an important step towards psychedelic music as he blended folk music with Eastern traditions through his guitar, slide guitar, banjo, and oud recordings. He recorded for Vanguard, but his addiction to heroin would cut his career short, interestingly leading to Vanguard courting Fahey to fill his role on their label. Have a listen to his breathtaking version of Carmina Burana. Thank you. 
Robbie Basho might be the only challenger to Fahey as the most influential acoustic guitarist of the 60s, though Basho did start his career under the guidance of Fahey and Tacoma Records. Basho, as stories would have it, might even have been more of an unpleasant person than Fahey during this time, which is no small feat at all. Born Daniel Robinson, Basho became interested in acoustic guitar and Eastern art at co- and culture during college. He moved to California and ran in the same folk circles as Fahey, leading to direct competition between the two. Basho was a character who presented himself as an elevated mystic dressing in capes and robes and convinced of his own magic and superiority. He was described as a hypochondriac and narcissist who only visited the normal world to receive praise and complain about not getting laid. His music, however, was amazing. Aimed at making the solo steel guitar into a compositional instrument, Basho was less interested in Americana and more focused on creating a form of American raga. His prodigious playing incorporated elements of Indian, Japanese, Native American, and other cultural and spiritual touchstones. He also sang in an over-the-top operatic style, a la Klaus Nomi. We'll spare you, but listen to The Falconer's Arm from his 1965 debut on Tacoma called The Seal of the Blue Lotus, considered a cult classic to experimental guitarists. Basho's life was cut short as he died in a freak chiropractor accident. Really, uh, seriously, a stroke due to problems from intentional whiplash. Leo Kotke was probably the most successful of the American primitive guitarists, and with good reason. He had a virtuosity and skill in his playing that was pretty much unmatched. Where Fahey left empty spaces, Kotke would fill his work with energetic technical precision. Listen to Vaseline Machine Gun from his debut record, six and 12 string guitar, which is also known as the Armadillo album. This record, which was a surprise hit for Tacoma Records and floated the label financially for many years, along with Fahey's Christmas record called A New Possibility. Kotke would go on to record on major labels and have great success, though his ferocious finger-picking left him with painful tendonitis issues. 
He slightly changed his playing style to be more jazz-oriented, but has continued to be a hugely influential guitarist. Three other fine musicians that each recorded at some point on Tacoma with Fahey include Harry Tossig, Max Oakes, cousin of Phil, and Peter Lang. Fahey was also inadvertently responsible for the New Age music movement of the 70s and 80s, and by responsible to blame for, uh, which he later lamented calling it hot tub music. William Ackerman, who would go on to start the instrumentally meditative Wyndham Hill record label, was an unabashed Fahey devotee. He even released an album called In Search of the Turtle's Navel, inspired directly by Fahey and his obsession with turtles. Also, George Winston, who would record a 1979 platinum-selling album, December, for Wyndham Hill Records, released his 1972 debut on Tacoma Records. It was called Ballad and Blues, and apparently didn't sell at all. Fahey later eloquently described his feelings about the yoga-loving style with a song entitled On the Death and Disembowelment of the New Age. Also as a side note, Fahey, Denson, and Tacoma were very instrumental in the launching of several traditional rock acts, including Canned Heat and Country Joe and the Fish. They may have some blues roots, but certainly don't exactly fit in the American primitive guitar box. And while Fahey was busy making music and pushing like-minded talent in the 60s and 70s, he never stopped pursuing the blues musicians that he idolized. And in a couple of cases, he was successful in finding these lost icons. Inspired by Tom Hoskins' 1963 discovery of Mississippi John Hurt, Fahey sent a postcard to the general attention of Booker White in Aberdeen, Mississippi, which had been mentioned in the bluesman's lyrics. By chance, Booker's cousin worked at the post office and forwarded him the postcard, offering $100 to record for Tacoma. This would lead to a short but meaningful relationship between the two artists and the release of White's first recording in decades called Mississippi Blues. Released at the same time as Fahey's second LP, Death Chance Breakdowns and Military Waltzes, everyone was surprised that Fahey was vastly outselling White. Fahey was also instrumental in the rediscovery of one of the most enigmatic blues musicians, Skip James. In 1964, Fahey set out with some fellow blues historians to speak to recently found bluesman Ishmael Bracey to look for clues on James' whereabouts. After tracking down leads and talking with relatives, Skip James was located in a hospital in Tanuka, Mississippi, in agony with testicular cancer. Fahey and his associates paid his hospital bills, which allowed James to be released, and they took him home, where he played for them, revealing the secrets of his odd chord structures and dark open D minor tuning. Fahey desperately wanted James to record for Tacoma, but he had no intention of helping the guitarist or his label. Skip James would shortly after have a bit of a revival career as he played the 1964 Newport Folk Festival and recorded a comeback album called Today on, you guessed it, Vanguard Records. Fahey was resentful of this and would proclaim that he bought Skip James, surely aware of the racially charged nature of that statement. Another unfortunate aspect of Fahey's nature was, despite his love and devotion to African-American music and musicians, he often played the role of the instigator on and off the stage, frequently making intolerant comments, often to bait audiences. Fahey, despite producing many amazing records in the 60s and 70s, was a hard drinker and a pill popper, had numerous romantic entanglements and marriages fall apart. He dabbled in meditation, but I guess who didn't, and just generally became more withdrawn socially and artistically. 
He was fortunate enough to have wives and friends and employees that cared about the man and helped him. His record company and affairs remained fairly stable, even if his personal life and health deteriorated by the late 70s and all throughout the 80s. By 1990, Fahey had retired from music. His third marriage had disintegrated, and he had contracted the Epstein-Barr virus, which gave the inflicted flu-like symptoms and fatigue for months on end. He lived in shelters and welfare motels, surviving by pawning guitars and flipping records when he could. Almost a decade out of the scene, he had no idea that underground experimental music had taken form through college rock stations. And he had no idea that he was seen as an icon to many young freeform guitarists like Glenn Jones of the Boston Art Rockers cul-de-sac and Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth. But gone to society with only his works and legends left behind, Fahey was more myth than man, much like the bluesman decades earlier. In striking irony, it was now the ailing and lost Fahey that was sought after to be found by rabid fans. Music critic Byron Foley, having fallen into the cult hero worship of Fahey, had pitched Spin magazine on the idea of seeking Fahey out. It made sense, find an eccentric, reclusive genius guitar player that many people assumed was already dead. Foley was able to find him in a flop house in Salem, Oregon, spent days eating, buying records, and talking with him and wrote an article in 1994 that humanized the man and made him and his bleak, brilliant music relevant to the mainstream of downer 90s culture. This resurgence was further enabled by a Rhino Records reissue compilation called Return of the Repressed. Opportunity suddenly came crashing in. A contract was drawn for him to re-record his monotone material with Sonic Youth backing him and Beck singing, but he wasn't interested. However, when a lawyer and record collector... Dean Blackwood reached out to see if Fahey was interested in recording anything for his label, Perfect Records. Fahey was willing to listen. Blackwood ended up being a godsend for Fahey and helped him take care of day-to-day stuff while slowly helping him focus on creative endeavors as well. At about the same time, Fahey's father died and surprisingly left him a quarter quarter of a million dollars. After taking care of some of his legal debts, Blackwood helped Fahey start Revenant Records, which began by releasing both old and new material with a smart, well-defined aesthetic. The label would gain recognition for fantastic releases from a diverse range of artists, including Albert Eiler, Captain Beefheart, Charlie Patton, a fourth volume of Harry Smith's anthology of folk music, as well as newer artists like Jim O'Rourke, Sir Richard Bishop, and the ba- the Bassholes. <laughs> I had to say it that way. The bass holes. (laughs) During the 90s, Fahey was fairly productive, writing a mostly fictional autobiography, releasing several new records, and touring a good bit, leaning towards a more post-rock collage sound and dissonant electric guitar, to the chagrin of much of his newfound audience. His acerbic wit and antisocial tendencies had not aged out of his personality, nor did his unhealthy habits with food, drugs, women. By 2000, Fahey was back in Salem, Oregon, living in a Salvation Army room. He was soon diagnosed with advanced heart disease and was recommended for open-heart surgery. John Fahey died on February 22, 2001, after undergoing undergoing a sextuple bypass surgery. He was buried in black shorts, sneakers, and a triple XL t-shirt. Leo Kotke eulogized him by saying, In a country full of crap, John created a living, generative culture. The legacy of John Fahey looms large. In fact, just this past year, the city of Tacoma Park hosted 
the Thousand Incarnations of the Rose, a festival of American primitive guitar, partially started by Glenn Jones and filmmaker documentarian Jesse Shepard. A weekend was dedicated to the small community of solo guitarists and their aficionados with discussion panels, workshops, films, and of course performances by Fahey followers, both legendary and contemporary. The new generation of guitarists continue to push boundaries and bring forth diverse elements to the art form, and they bravely are saving solo guitar from the musical purgatories of new age and smooth jazz. And while their numbers continue to thrive, we'd like to highlight a few of the most notable modern American primitive guitarists. The man who held the mantle of the new era unfortunately had his life cut short at the age of 38. Jack Rose left the experimental drone band Pelt to focus attention on guitar and release a prolific number of LPs, singles, and collaborations. He was described aptly by Penn Chasney of Six Organs of Admittance as someone who has something to say on the acoustic guitar that has, has, hasn't been said before. Here is his cover of Fahey's Sunflower River Blues. Daniel Bachman has reached a moderate level of success as an NPR darling and Rolling Stone musician to watch with his blending of drone elements and languid slide guitar into his playing. His records often sound out of time, pitting hard Americana and futurism against each other. Here's Song for the Setting Sun 4 from the album The Morning Star. creates a totally unexpected vision of solo guitar with free improvisation blending elements of folk, punk, and blues. Inspired after seeing Muddy Waters performing in The Last Waltz, his frenzied sound can come off as harsh at times, but is also captivating as he explores the concept of authenticity in the blues. Listen to his cover of the Disney classic When You Wish Upon a Star from The History of Everyone LP.
And there are plenty of folks around the periphery of the genre who make fascinating stark music as well. Of course, producer and musician Jim O'Rourke, uh, who we've already mentioned at least once, who, who worked with John Fahey and pretty much everyone else, has created some beautiful experimental Americana. Check out Happy Days and Bad Timing, both created while O'Rourke was spending time with Fahey. William Tyler, also amazing. He's worked with Bonnie Prince Billy, The Silver Jews, and Lamb Chop, and has some amazingly country-laden guitar albums himself. Chris Forsyth brings noise rock elements into guitar compositions. Should check out his album, Solar Motel. There are a couple record labels that primarily focus on solo guitarists, both new music and reissues. Tompkins Square and VDSQ put out stellar works, definitely worth checking out. Numero, as we, we've mentioned probably a, a thousand times already in 30-some episodes, they also have issues. Um, they also issued a guitar solely collection as part of their Wayfaring Stranger series. American primitive music is alive, continuing in its original roots and seeking from the past while looking toward the unknown. Individualistic in its execution, the hybrid genre's ability to twist, turn, and reinvent conventions makes it one of the truest American musical forms. One that should linger and flourish into future generations of finger-picking loners. Of these albums, do you how many of these albums of John Fahey or Sandy Bull or Robbie Basho do you have? I don't have any Robbie Basho or Sandy Bull uh, albums. I got a few John Fahey ones. I'm going to play a clip. From, I'm gonna, well, when I play a song, I'm going to play a song from my favorite uh, John Fahey album, which I'll talk a little bit about. I also have his uh, Christmas album, uh, which we mentioned. It's probably the easiest of his records to find. It's You can usually find it for a few bucks when you see it, and it's absolutely worth it. It's probably the best Christmas record to listen to if you just want something that's mildly festive, but, you know, isn't going to you know hit you over the head with Christmas cheer. <laughs> Because who wants that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, uh, I think I got a best of John Fahey that's really good. It has a lot of stuff from his early years. They're not, I mean, they were never giant sellers, so they're not super easy to find, but you, you can find them for sure. And, and honestly, I was more of a John Fahey fan as I started kind of exploring and finding all these these other guys. You know, I... I, I Honestly, I haven't spent a lot of time looking for them, but I know Robbie Basho, the Blue Seal of the Lotus, I think, Foreman and a Beard reissued that. So some of these are getting reissued, I think. Uh, did you have an opinion of John Fahey before you read about him? Did you know that he was kind of an asshole? Oh, no, I didn't know much about him at all. I know I just liked his music. I. It's so weird to discover somebody who actually pretty much you can pinpoint a musical style who created a musical style. I mean, you, that just doesn't happen. And one that's pretty well documented as it goes, like I think part of the problem is I read several articles that would contradict them each other. You know, it just, I think he just put out so much bullshit about <laughs> what he was doing that it made it kind of hard to kind of follow. But certainly I think his obsession with music, you know, kind of drove, drove his ability to, to make something new, which is always something I kind of get interested in. It's how is creating and learning from the past helping you to make something new or helping to evolve or progress music? And I think he's a perfect example of that. 
Another example would be when electronica music was created by Lou Reed with metal machine music, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, you, I'm fine with you going out on a limb and saying that. It's it's an interesting musical genre, and I think it's just so interwoven with John Fahey, it's kind of like impossible to kind of tease them out, even though there's a lot of really great older and newer you know artists in the style. So hopefully we touched on enough of them where if you're interested in it, you can kind of find a person that fits that. But it's it's hard to depart from John Fahey because he was such like a, a giant of the style. Yeah. Yeah. William Tyler's a really good one to seek out. Really good artist. He's still pretty young. He's doing a doing a lot of great stuff. Jim O'Rourke too, but he his sounds vary so much. It would be hard to just kind of grab one and think you're getting American prim- primitive guitar when you're not. You're getting something completely different. So look into that first um, if you're going to go his way. And I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to play my favorite John Fahey track, and I'm also going to play my favorite modern uh, American primitive guitarist uh, song of hers, which um, she's she's the one that she actually, it was her record that I got that kind of made me start thinking about doing this turntable talk. And so we'll talk about her in a couple minutes. Great. Well, why don't we just move into into playing some songs then? Fantastic. I'm going first today, and I'm going to start with a song called L.A. Getaway by a band called Hill Barbada and Etheridge.
All right, that was L.A. Getaway by a band called Hill, Barbada, and Etheridge. It uh, was released in 1971 on Atco Records. Now, the, three these three people were all well-known for being in other projects. Never really well-known for this one. Um, it just sort of fell by the wayside. They only made one album. Barbada was a drummer for John, maybe John Fahey-inspired band called The Turtles. And after that, he joined Jefferson Starship, and then he played with... Crosby, Stills, and Nash for a while. He left Jefferson Starship before they went into their We Built This Kitty phase, which was good. Good for him. Uh, But he's a great drummer. Really well-known. Probably the most well-known of the three. Now, Hill, the singer on almost all of the songs on this album, was a really underrated blue-eyed soul singer who... If you listen to any Flying Burrito Brothers albums after Graham Parson, you'll hear him singing. He's the the lead vocalist on those albums. Chris Etheridge, the last guy, is the reason I bought the album, because I was obsessed with him. I was obsessed with him and Clarence White for a while. If you have a favorite album in the 70s or a group of them, he's probably on one of those albums. He's played with everybody, and he was one of the founding members of the Flying Burrito Brothers. The song that you just heard is the only song on the album that Chris Etheridge sings on. The rest of them, Hill sings on the rest of them. And the songs are great. They're mostly covers. Uh, They're really good. And the backing band, or some of the people that are backing them on this, Clarence White plays guitar. They have on Hammond organ and piano, they have Leon Russell, Spooner Oldham, Booker T. Jones, and Mac Rebenack, or Dr. John. They're They're all on this album. It's a really good lost album Uh, it's one that you should seek out don't pay a lot for it uh it's got some great songs on it it's got about three or four amazing songs and the rest of it's rest of it's pretty good worth finding it shouldn't ever cost more than about six or seven dollars though so again it's la getaway by hill barbada and etheridge that is a quite a backing band right all right uh for my first song as we talked about a little bit about this is a uh this is my favorite john fahey song i think Uh, It's my favorite of the time right now. Uh, It's called Dance of the Inhabitants of the Invisible City of Bladensburg.
right, that was Dance of the Inhabitants of the Invisible City of Bladensburg. I didn't talk about this in the turntable talk, but John Fahey has some of the craziest batshit uh, titles for songs. Uh, just just strange, strange songs. Anyways, uh, this one is from the album Yellow, The Yellow Princess, which was on Vanguard. He, he left uh, Tacoma for a while to record on Vanguard, and it's from 1968. Basically, Fahey left uh, for Vanguard because he wanted to be seen as a classical composer of sorts, and he thought Vanguard might give him that distinction. Vanguard had a different idea. They wanted the in vogue type folk singer, folk or not folk singer, folk musician. Uh, but this tension between what Fahey wanted and what Vanguard wanted led to a unbalanced but brilliant first record uh, called Requia. But the second album... Um, things had calmed down a little bit, and it might be like, like I said, one of my Fahey, re- my favorite Fahey records. It's it's called The Yellow Princess, and it's a great blend of experimentalism, psychedelic flourishes, and Fahey just showing off his skills. And it, it kind of hit the right feel of the time because it's vaguely political. It has just some twinges of rock and rolls mixed into this to the song, and it actually sold decently well, and and is you know. It's a good jumping off point for John Fahey if you want to start listening to him. The song I played you uh, was actually recorded the morning after Robert Kennedy was shot and killed. It's one of the strangest songs in Fahey's early uh, catalog uh, because it has this tense, slow burn, soft finger picking buildup that leads to a full on blues rock outro. And Fahey did not like the idea of playing at all with a, a full band, even if it is this 30-second outro. He'd never done anything with a full band, except he'd played a few times with Red Crayola, interestingly enough. That didn't really go anywhere, but he did try playing with them at some point. Anyways, uh, his producer, Barry Hansen, convinced him that the song could still be balanced with an electric part, and he brought in members of the band Spirit to record that final rave-up finale. Fahey grumbled about it the whole time, but apparently he really worked hard to make it sound good and gave it an honest effort, and it's kind of a good example of the sound that American primitive guitar could have, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, what would he have done if he would have done, like, a instrumental rock album at that point might have been fantastic anyways i love that song and the yellow princess is a great uh first record to check out for john if you're interested in getting to john fahey i don't remember how much i paid for it but it was not cheap and my copy's pretty beat up so i think like joe was saying it's it's not a super easy to find record but maybe it's been reissued or something but i do have an original All right, my second song is Marissa Anderson, and the song is called Hard Times Come Again No More. Thank you. 
was Marissa Anderson with Hard Times Come Again No More. And that's a um, a Stephen Foster song. And she put it out on an album called Traditional and Public Domain Songs on Grapefruit Records in, two, on, in 2013. Marissa Anders is probably my favorite modern instrumental guitar player. She has just a great depth of emotion and creativity in her playing. And she's kind of a true troubadour. She hailed from North northern california but she dropped out of college to you know just traverse and walk across the country she eventually wound up in portland but still tours and records pretty frequently this album called traditional public domain songs is just that it's a collection of 20th century standards folk songs spiritual ballads from a variety of sources all played on solo guitar through her unique vision on her website, she says she spent a year researching hymns, blues, murder ballads, and American patriotic songs. And the resulting record, she wanted to be an exploration of the relationship between evangelical Christianity and state-sanctioned violence. So there's that. Uh, the album was originally uh, created when she was an artist in residence at KBOO, which is a community radio station in Portland. And they made a super small, rare run on Grapefruit Records in 2013. And then thankfully, Mississippi Records remedied that by re-releasing it this year. And so, like I said, it's a version of Stephen Foster's Hard Time, Come Again, No More. It's kind of a swirling, hypnotic song. It doesn't veer much off the simple parlor song melody, but it's that ringing, barely distorted guitar that just kind of lulls you into a trance. And uh, it's just, just a fantastic example of modern American primitive guitar. I've got the last song for today, and it is Mama Cass with a song called Sour Grapes.
right, that was Mama Cass with a song called Sour Grapes from her 1969 album, Bubblegum, Lemonade, and Something for Mama. And that was actually an album that was released twice in 1969. First in July under the name Mama Cass, and then again later in December with the Bubblegum Lemonade title. Now, this was supposed to be like a comeback for her, sort of, because after the Mamas and Papas broke up in 1968... Mama Cass was signed to do, like, a, I think it was three weeks in Vegas, two shows a night. And she got paid a ton of money. And this is... Really? Yeah, this is this is a fun, fun story. So she got paid a lot of money up front to do this. Now, she was losing weight very, very quickly, intentionally. And I'm not, sh- not sure how she might have been doing that. She uh, was supposed to rehearse with the band that they'd put together. She was supposed to rehearse with them three full days, you know, before the first show, she showed up for not even one whole rehearsal. And then she left saying that her voice was shot. So she didn't do the rehearsals. When she went on to the show, she was saying that she had a, well, her voice was hurting. Um, She had a really high fever before the very first show on the first night. And instead of canceling it, she went out and performed and in the audience, were they were had, like, Jimi Hendrix, Sammy Davis Jr., Liza Minnelli, Joan Baez, Peter Lawford, like, big stars out there. And she tanked. It was, like, one of the worst things anybody had ever seen. I think Newsweek compared that performance to the Titanic crashing and sinking to the ground. <laughs> I guess... She came out after the first after the first set or after at the because she was doing two shows after the first show she came out and said it'll get better <laughs> but but it didn't <laughs> the second show was even worse <laughs> and then after that night the show was completely canceled there were a lot of rumors that she was on drugs at the time and in a biography about her she mentioned that before the show she had done she had taken taken some drugs but didn't really say what, um, and it was probably she had probably been taking them longer than that just than just that time, but it was a huge disaster, and this was this was what was supposed to kind of proper back up, and it was it's a good album it it did it was moderate sales I think it was like a hundred and sixty nine on the charts or something it was okay the money she owed a lot of money after that Vegas performance because they everybody needed their money back and Dunhill came in and said well we'll we'll make a record for you if you, you know, make this a little poppier. And, and that's what she did. That's what she gave them. And it was, it was just okay. I'm sure they made their money back, but I love that song. And I really love that story. Uh, I don't like doing, you know, bad news stories, but it's, it's kind of fun too. Um, <laughs> she's such a, she was such a great singer. Yeah. We both love Mama Cass. I think I have that record too. Oh, it's, it's a fun record. That's how I would describe it. It is. It's very peppy. Yep. Describing as Titanic is just a horrible, that's a horrible thing to say. Oh, man. There's an actual quote from Newsweek, and it was, Like some great ocean liner embarking on an ill-fated maiden voyage, Mama Cass slid down the ways and sank to the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good, actually. And then, allegedly, right after that show, she went back to, well, not allegedly, she went back to L.A., I think, and she had... Now, this is the alleged part. She had a tonsillectomy, which is probably not really what happened, but she may have had to dry out. But anyway, enough of spreading horrible rumors about people who are 
dead. In a, in a lot of ways, that's like the majority of our show, though. Right, right. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Let's, it's a great story. Let's just tell it and pretend it's completely true. That one, <laughs> at least, is documented by Newsweek, which is which is pretty good. This is, yeah. That is a, somewhat credible. As much research as sometimes we put into some of these things, I guess. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, we got to settle up on some trivia, right? Yeah, let's finish that up. So, I'm going to go ahead and run through these songs one more time. We've got five clips, and the same artist is in each clip, but each clip is two songs playing on top of each other for that. So, all what I want is the artist and both songs that are playing. So, here we go. Track one. Track two. First one is Fitzgerald George's own uh, Abner J. Yes, it is. Yeah, and the two songs I think are "Woe Mule." I'm pretty sure of that one, and I think the one and other one is uh, "Cocaine." That's exactly right. And "Woe Mule," I think, was in the clip I played the song, the lyrics, and it, you you certainly know that guy well. Oh yeah, I, lo- I love Abner J. He's one of my favorites. All right, the second band is I think the Trogs. Yes. And I knew it was the Trucks because I uh, knew the song Girl Like You. I knew that part. I have no clue what the other song is. I think the only other Trog song I might know is Wilding. It's Any Way That You Want Me. All right. The third song, I think, was T or third artist was T Rex. Yep. And I think it was Metal Guru and Mambo Sun. You got them. Both of them. All right. Yeah. I wasn't totally sure about Mambo's son, but I guess I got it right. So there you go. Good story. <laughs> the fourth one, I don't know the artist. I think it's Batula Clark, okay. but I'm not sure. The songs are the German version of Downtown and Bang Bang. Right. And it is Batula Clark. And you got both those okay, songs. Okay, cool. Great. Yep. Good job. Uh, You're knocking, yeah. them, knocking them out of the park here. Both uh, good songs. Uh, the fifth one is Mama Cass, who you just talked about, is Dream a Little Dream. And the other song, which I now know as Sour Grapes because you just played it. But I honestly, I did. I wouldn't have got that. I just I knew Dream a Little Dream. I, I didn't remember what the name of the first song was. 
when I was picking out these clips, I played, I put the Mama Cass on there and I played Sour Grapes. And I was like, oh man, I forgot how much I love this song. So I had to, I had to put it in as a song I wanted to play too. So screwed up the trivia slightly, but worth it. Dream a Little Dream of Me is just perfect too. Yeah. It's a perfect, perfect song. So that's one of my two favorite songs of all time. That and Fever. Anyway. Enough about that. I probably mentioned that on on a show in the past, but great job. It's good to. I mean, I'm glad you have two songs you know are your favorite. Absolute favorite. Like, I don't know if I have two songs I know are my favorite. Yeah, there's, and it's been that way for at least 25 years. Has not changed. So there's no song that could like come and take the throne. Oh sure, there could be. I mean, what part of the point of me listening to music is and new music is maybe I'll find my new favorite song. It's out there somewhere. Something could be number That's one. That's true. So That's true. keep going. Very good. All right. Well, please remember to go out and uh, support your local record shops and go to a show or buy some records. You know, it's just important. And we always say, you know, we're not, we're not doing the show to take money away from any artist. We want to kind of make sure that we always encourage you guys to go out and support artists. It's it's important. Um, yeah, it is. And also join us on social media. Come come talk to us. We're lonely. Uh, we have a Twitter feed, Facebook page. Email us if you want to. It's Highway Hi-Fi Podcast at gmail.com. The Twitter handle is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Pretty simple. And Facebook is really easy to find. And if you can, if you think of it, go to Apple and itunes and leave us leave us a review so other people will see this it really helps with exposure all right well uh we hope everybody has a wonderful uh day or evening whenever you're listening to it and we will talk to you next time any way that you are well that's so horrible It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.